Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Welcome back to the Sand Hills Podcast, Season 4, Episode 5, where we are discussing the question, was Jesus just a good moral teacher? Now, to have this conversation, we got to have David Cashin back on the show. And if you aren't familiar with him, he's a professor of intercultural studies at Columbia International University. We've had him on the show before discussing engaging Eastern religions, specifically Islam, on previous seasons. So we'll link the show that he was last on in the show notes. We'd love for you to check that out. It's an incredible conversation, but this one is also phenomenal. If you're a non-believer listening to this, this episode has the capacity for you to really hear what the gospel is all about and even respond to it. And if you are a believer, this episode has the potential to increase and deepen your walk with Christ as we hear about what we really believe and how we can be living it out. Now, if this podcast at all has been beneficial to you, we would really appreciate it if you would subscribe and turn on notifications for when episodes come out. We have the great pleasure of being funded and fueled by Sandhills Community Church. We don't run ads or anything like that, but we survive off of the church knowing that people are engaging and growing in this material. So we're going to get into this conversation, and if you feel led, please click like, subscribe, share with a friend. We would really appreciate it. Let's get to this conversation. What is the good? You know, when you think about morality, it's not just that people behave nicely. Ultimately, you're dealing with what is it that is bedrock, truth, good, righteous, pure, clean, correct. What is that which is a foundation for human existence? And Jesus demonstrates that for us. No, the only time you're really going to be free and fulfilled is when, as a created being, you begin to walk in the way that he's created you to operate. But what you do need to do is just be a faithful representation of what you believe. Live it, live it boldly, don't hedge on anything, and just simply be who you are for the sake of Christ and the gospel and the church. And don't think about it in terms of like, did I make sure that they understood that I think they're wrong? In every generation, we need to evangelize the church. There is no Christian culture. Christianity is the message of God's Son sacrificed on the cross for our salvation. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to choose him or not? And I often tell people, people don't leave church because of God. Mm -hmm. They leave because of other people. All right, Dr. Cashin, thank you so much for being back on the podcast. It's great to see you. Um, I'm really excited to dive into this conversation with you. Well, John, thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. Yes, of course. And and this one centers around uh, the misconception that people can have about Christ. Now, in the last couple episodes that we've done, we've really hit on uh, kind of misconceptions of theology. Mm -hmm. And this one is unique because it really gets to the life of Jesus Christ and mm. how some people respond to it. And so um, you are an expert in Islam, and I think that this will be a really cool conversation as well because, I mean, what do we do with Isa? What do we do with Jesus? How do we communicate that? And I think understanding, uh, is he a prophet? Is he just a good moral teacher? Or is he the Messiah? I think is a really incredible conversation. Um, 
So we'll just jump into it. I've, I've heard this um, idea that Jesus is just a good moral teacher from um, academic areas, philosophical areas, but most predominantly I've heard it from, you know, friends or colleagues that I've had who have said, you know, I'm, you know, the whole Christian thing is fine and I'll take the ethics, but not the faith. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering if, if you've heard of that misconception and if so, where have you heard it? Well, actually, probably the first time I heard that was reading uh, in the writings of C.S. Lewis, uh, Mere Christianity, uh, where he uh, deals with that particular question. And one of the points that he makes is that if Jesus was not whom he claimed to be, then he was anything but a good moral teacher. Mm. Uh, That's one aspect of that. A a second aspect would be, you know, if you try to grab Jesus just as a moral teacher, you not only— don't get Jesus, but you don't really get moral teachings either. Yeah, absolutely. And and the problem is this, that um, without God in the background, uh, Christian moral teachings uh, have one area where there can be no true accountability, Mm. and that is in your motivational and thought life. Mm. Uh, In other words, uh, you can hold a person accountable on the outside through human ethics, but you will never be able to get into what's going on in their head or what's going on in their heart. Uh, This is one of the reasons why if you take God out of the Christianity equation, you get a very defunct kind of a morality that doesn't deal with the deepest inner motivations. And by the way, every religion struggles to some degree with that reality. Mm. Uh, In Islam, you have uh, two angels, one that sits on your right shoulder and one that sits on your left shoulder. They're called Munki and Noki. And uh, if you do a good deed, the one on your right shoulder writes it down, you know, keeping the accounts. There it is. Uh, If if you do a bad deed, the one on the left shoulder writes that down. If you think a good thought, the one on the right shoulder writes it down. But if you think a bad thought... The one on the right shoulder runs over and says to the one on the left shoulder, hey, he didn't actually do anything, so don't write that down. <laughs> uh, this is a way of sort of, uh, you know, causing the balance to be yeah. on the side of the good. Uh, and, and Islam recognizes that same problem. What do you mm. do with inner motivations, with people's inner thoughts? Yeah. But because it is so focused on the outward aspect, it is a purely ethics-based religion in terms of human behavior patterns. That's what Sharia mm. is all about. Um, Jesus more or, less, more or less rejects the idea of what Muslims would call Sharia and what the uh, Jewish uh, people of his time, the, the Pharisees, would call the law, the Torah, right. uh, if it is not founded, based, and built up on the actual thought patterns and heart attitudes of people. So, uh, number one, Jesus rejects the kind of ethics that these friends are talking about. He's saying it doesn't go deep enough. Yes, it's, mm. these are nice thoughts, but you've got to go deeper. You have to have an accountability where God doesn't just watch your actions. He hears your thoughts. And in human ethics, there is no place for thoughts. Mm. All right, I'll grant you if you're being tried, they do look for motive right. to figure out, you know, okay, why did you do this? Right. But you could have murdered 100,000 people in your heart, and as long as you didn't pick up a gun or a knife, mm. uh, as far as the society is concerned, you've done nothing wrong. Yeah, you're innocent. But from a biblical viewpoint, you know, that is the foundation. It is out of the hatred of a person's heart that comes then these other kinds of actions. So um, from my point of view, taking God out of the equation removes probably the most important motivational uh, and frankly power factor Mm. that it is 
Christ in you. It is the Holy Spirit in you. It is God in you that enables you because human flesh is weak. And every society, I don't care what their moral standard is, falls deeply short of that moral standard because it lacks an empowerment. Mm. So for me, ethics makes no sense without an inner power source that's something beyond just what human beings can accomplish. And the scriptures seem to make very plain that no human being can do what is necessary to please God Mm. uh, apart from God's effort or work within them. So from my perspective, uh, they're missing the whole point. Yeah. Uh, you, you remove the power source for walking in a lifestyle of love. Then to get to the other point, uh, Jesus as just a nice moral teacher. Uh, well, C.S. Lewis uh, said very bluntly that if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, then he was anything but a moral teacher. Right. When Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, mm. that's essentially affirming our impotence apart from his power source within us. Fits in with the first point, right? Right. But then if Jesus isn't who he says he is, that's a bald-faced lie. Yeah. And a lie that would delude people to think that there's somebody backing them up when there's nobody there. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, from my perspective, on on two counts, that idea falls far short uh, of what the source and power and rationale for Christian ethics uh, is and where it comes from. Yeah, absolutely. That gets to that... um kind of very famous three L's where he's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. Right. One of the... We just looked at the liar aspect. Exactly. Right. Um, And if you're walking around claiming to be the son of God and you're, you know, lying about it, then you might be a lunatic. You know, it might be going crazy. And, um, or he is who he says he is. Mm -hmm. You you take him at what he says. Why do you think, you know, as you laid it out, I mean, that sounds so clear, but why do you think that people believe the misconception of just good moral teacher? Why would they want that? Because it's convenient. I mean, frankly, that's not very demanding. Mm. You know, uh, if you think about it, to be on the surface correct in your behavior patterns, um, if you don't have to worry about what goes through your head uh, and whether what your head is saying is out of sync with God's will in that sense... Uh, this is a very convenient way of looking at things. It, it doesn't really require that much of me. Mm. Uh, it says that as long as I uh, keep my nose clean, uh, don't do you know really bad things, and, right. and as long as I'm a nice guy, uh, who needs God? Who needs yeah. Jesus? Who needs any of this stuff? Um, of course, that's based on the misconception that you are going to be okay right. without any God in your life, without any help, without any Holy Spirit, without the redemption of Christ. Um, and I think you'll find over and over again uh, that people find themselves to be bankrupt. But for a time, you can delude yourself into thinking that you're a good person. I mean, let's take Bertrand Russell for an example, a very famous atheist um, who thought of himself, he, one of his points was, there's no need for God, we human beings will figure it out on our own. Uh, and if you look at his life, uh, he got engaged in some pretty disgusting stuff. Uh, and interestingly enough, when he got to the end of his life, it was as if he understood just uh, how far short he'd fallen even of typical human morality, right? Uh, not, not to speak of, you know, the kind of demands that Jesus makes, which are right. way far above uh, what human morality would, would normally speak to. 
uh, he fell short even on the human level. Um, and so he said some of his last words were, I commit my body to the worms and my soul to the great perhaps. Hmm. And I think to myself, why did that perhaps come in? Yeah. Uh, I think uh, he just understood that he'd fallen short. And maybe there was a hope that somehow something might make it all right in the end. Mm. And, uh, you know, if we're honest with each other and you think back on your own life, you know, I was a, a drug addict. I was a, a, just a totally messed up kid. My life was a, a sewer. And Jesus was the one who jumped into that sewer and pushed me out. And I can't say that I've been a perfect guy since then. Uh, I will say that as soon as Jesus pushed me out of the sewer, I suddenly had awareness of sin that I'd never had before, an awareness of conscience, mm -hmm. an awareness of all the ways in which I was uh, selfish, lustful, uh, bitter, uh, egocentric. I mean, wow, all the stuff. And, you know, when Jesus, I would not have put me on my team, okay? Mm -hmm. So Jesus put picked up this guy who was going to really put the motley in crew, okay? <laughs> uh, and and that's, that's his grace. And mm. what human beings don't like is the idea that I have to depend on someone else's grace. Yeah, absolutely. God's grace uh, is my only hope. And uh, the world doesn't like that. That, you know, we can do it, you know, can-do mentality. That's, that's, right. that's America, right? We don't, we don't need any outside help. So there's, there's a human pride element in that. When you come to the foot of the cross and you recognize I'm the one that nailed Jesus to the cross, hmm. every one of us with our sins, um, that's a humbling thing. And I think it puts you in the right place to begin to follow in the pathway of Jesus. Not perfectly but I'm gonna follow in his pathway because not just his example, but the fact that he's made the pathway. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door, I am the good shepherd. All these I am statements of Jesus indicate that you follow after him. He's, he's the second lieutenant who's leading the charge, right. okay? And, and we just hang close to him because he's both the source of the truth, but he's also the source of the power. Absolutely. That's one of the beautiful things in First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, where, where Peter really uh, hits on this because he's talking about uh, submission and he's talking about uh, obeying even when you're suffering unjustly, even when you're enduring uh, through great hardship, when you've done nothing wrong at all. In fact, you've only done good, uh, but you're still enduring through that. And it says because he's left an example for us in his life and in the word that's used there for example is so wonderful because it's the same word that's used to describe teaching a child how to write that you would trace it out in the sand and then the kid would run their finger over it and learn how to write uh in the same way we learn how to walk and how to endure and persevere and this was something we were talking about in our young adult ministry and it was really challenging because you realize you have to come to the end of self to follow like that and you have to rely on the Holy Spirit of Christ Jesus to help you walk in the example of Christ Jesus. Amen. And what that demands is the, re, you know, the, the destruction of self. You know, I must decrease, he must increase mentality, which is incredibly unpopular. And so you're absolutely right. If someone was just able to take um, a good saying here and there and, you know, some nice morality and ethics and not have to let go of self and not, you know, have to submit to someone else and get to be king of their castle still, uh, they're going to take it, you know, and that's, and I think that's one of the really interesting aspects of, um, 
the idea that the gospel is offensive enough as it is. So you don't have to lay anything else in the way. You tell someone that they have to come to the end of themselves uh, and that they're you know bankrupt, like you said, uh, but there's someone who can cash the check and someone who who's willing to and ready to and can uh, fill the account. And it's, it's really incredible. It's very hard to wrestle with. Um, was Jesus a, a moral teacher at all, though? Kind of getting back to that aspect of... Um, you don't see Jesus say much about morality in terms of moral teaching. He's got a few moments, Sermon on the Mount, obviously, uh, very popular for where he's saying, you know, this is how to live, this is how you do things. But besides that, we see a lot of cryptic messages, things that the disciples don't even understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so would would he even fall into the kind of classification of a moral teacher, or, or how, does, how does he land in that area? You know, I think the thing that is most obvious about Jesus is how his life ends. Uh, Yes, he gives principles of life. He points to what you think about is who you are. Uh, Don't Mm. think that you can fake God out by pretending to be something that you're not because he knows exactly what's going on inside of you. But I love the fact that when everything comes to the end, it's Jesus on the cross. Uh, not his moral teachings, uh, not his uh, good behavior and the way that he helped other people, the healings that he did, the, the incredible deliverances that he accomplished, the way that he worked with broken people, uh, with tax collectors and prostitutes and every imaginable kind of riffraff. I mean, just look at his disciples. What a, what a <laughs> gathering of riffraff you've Absolutely. got there, everything from a Sakati, uh Jewish terrorist of the time to a guy who was a collaborator with the Roman army. Uh, But what is significant is his death. And I think in many ways, the question comes back to us, okay, what it really boils down to is what are you willing to die for? Hmm. Um, Jesus dies to redeem us. And sometimes we are called to die for him. I have four friends uh, my wife and I together have four friends who've been martyred for Jesus. Uh, pastor Sayah, uh, who is my wife's pastor in Shiraz, Iran, was uh, murdered uh, for his faith. Uh, Mehdi Dibaj and Haikov Sepian were two. Mehdi was a, a Muslim background believer. Uh, uh, Haik was an uh, Armenian evangelist who worked much with Muslims. Both of them knew they were going to be murdered. And they could have escaped from Iran and escaped death but they stayed and they ministered and they were both kidnapped by the government and murdered. And then a good friend of uh, Margareta's and mine, uh, John Tarswell, worked with the Afghans and he was also martyred. Now, ultimately what the cross uh, tells you is if you really want to walk in a loving way, whether it's through the Holocaust or whether it's through the Armenian massacres or whether it's through what's going on right now in Ukraine, are you willing to die for what is right? And are you willing also to take it on faith that when you die, there is a resurrection? Mm. There is a time when you will be, uh, what's the word here, not reconciled, when you will be vindicated. That's the word I'm looking for. Jesus is vindicated. He is raised from the dead. He is demonstrated to be the Son of God. He's demonstrated to be the sacrificial lamb, that's what's important about the life of Jesus. It's not for no reason at all that the most ubiquitous symbol of Christianity is a cross. Mm. It's everywhere. And the reason it is, is superseding his teaching, per se, 
is what he did. And ultimately what that says to us is it's not enough to just be a good person because good people will run away from a machine gun. Mm-hmm. Good people will abandon, uh, you know, we would say that's going too far. You know, who can demand that? Well, Jesus doesn't demand anything of us that he isn't willing to give himself. Mm. And he puts his life on the line and he dies. And God vindicates him by raising him from the dead. So he's not only the source of our forgiveness, but he's our example of what it means to really trust in the good. What is the good? You know, when you think about morality, it's not just that people behave nicely. Ultimately, you're dealing with what is it that is bedrock, truth, good, righteous, pure, clean, correct. What is that which is a foundation for human existence? And Jesus demonstrates that for us. The truth is, you know, I am the way, the truth and the life. And if I am the truth, then even death is not too much to ask. And Mm. I'll prove it to you because I'll go right through that. So he not only vindicates what is the truth, he also vindicates us. Yeah. As we take faith in him, by his grace, he redeems us. So for me, uh, you miss the whole point of Christianity if you focus on morality. Right. Really, Christianity is something uh, way beyond just being a nice person. Absolutely. And it's so fascinating when we think of Jesus. I mean, we're coming up on Easter Sunday you know, this, this weekend. And you think of Jesus's story and, and, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, he was, you know, son of God. It was easy for him. It was mm. anything, but you see him in the garden and he's asking if there's another way, Sweaty if, blood. if this cup can pass for me, mm. you know, and, but he's willing to submit himself to the father, um, and, and rely on the Holy spirit to get him through uh, that moment. And it's, uh, I mean, really incredible. You're absolutely right. He's not asking us, you know, anything that he hasn't done. Um, and like scripture says that, uh, we won't be tested beyond, it's not like we don't know, you know, and it's not like God doesn't know what we're going through. Um, and he understands us and he levels with us quite literally. And he's walked with us and knows the human experience. And I think that's one of the fascinating points of how Jesus goes beyond moral teaching. And he's the only one who could go beyond moral teaching. Um, and set up that life example, the the full life in Christ that we talk about, um, you know, which he found as the Son of God, they have a full submission to the Father, um, and that that is just one of the amazing things that I think is a huge highlight is when someone says, "Well, you know, I just want to follow Jesus as a moral teacher." It's he doesn't even allow that based off of his own lifestyle, just like you were saying, is he goes far beyond moral teaching. Um, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis kind of makes the analogy to a dentist and he says uh i hated going to the dentist as a kid because um you know i go in and i've got a toothache in one tooth and then the dentist starts going about saying all these other teeth have issues and then i've got to get everything else fixed and he says jesus is a lot like that where you can come in for one issue but he's going to see the whole thing set right um so you could come in for morality but jesus goes far beyond that and he's going to set everything right if you allow him to do his work um, but a lot of people fear the dentist chair just because they don't want to go through the pain of being told they've got cavities. Um, being told who you are. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult. How how else do you think that um, Jesus goes beyond the moral teaching aspect? And are there any comparisons to him, um, you know, throughout history or anything like that, where um, 
people either attempt to do something like that, go beyond moral teaching, or is Jesus the only one that truly goes, you know, far beyond moral teaching? You know, I got to tell you, uh, last week I went to a caregivers uh, conference. Uh, my wife ha- has Alzheimer's, and uh, so I uh, went to a conference to, um, you know, how do you do care for these people? And um, there was a lady there in the afternoon who wanted to do a relaxation uh, thing with us. And she started to preach uh, pure Buddhism, you mm. know, mindfulness and, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I know a good bit about Buddhism and I, I know how to read Pali and you know, the original language of the Buddhist scriptures. And finally, it got so Buddhist that I couldn't help it. I broke out into a Buddhist chant for her. I said, Bhutong Sharananga Chami, Shongong Sharananga Chami. And at this point, she's completely confused. <laughs> what are you doing? And I said, you're preaching pure Buddhism. Now, her response was to say, well, this is what all religions teach. Mm. Well, that's absolutely not true. Uh, all religions do not teach mindfulness in that sense. There's a lot about Buddhism. Uh, Buddhist morality has often been compared to Christian morality, mm. to, to the preaching of Jesus, because Buddhists do deal with the mind and mindfulness as uh, a means of recognizing that everything that you cling to is unreal and that you yourself are unreal. You are anatma or anatta, as they would say in Pali. You are not self. Mm. There is no self. So... Your problem is you cling to your ethereal sense of self. If you can just let go of that, you can reach nirvana, which is nirban, meaning without fire or extinguished. Right. Um, what's interesting about that is Buddhist morality is purely mechanistic. Uh, you do this, you will get that. Act in this way, this will be the consequences. Mm. Pure mechanistic cycle of samsara, uh, where your, you know, whatever karma you do, whatever deed you do, has an automatic and unavoidable impact. Right. So Buddhists work very hard at controlling even thought life, uh, trying to superimpose a, a extremely high level of morality. And a lot of people have said, well, that's, you know, that's kind of like Christianity. And you hear a lot of people talking about Buddhist ethics and, and Christian ethics within circles that study these things. Mm. My response is to say, well, two, two major problems. Number one, the denial of ontology, that there is no self. First of all, how is it possible for me to use an unreal self to realize that which is real? Right. Okay, there's a logical conundrum there. I'm, I'm using self-effort to realize something that is completely not self, that is non-ontological. Right. That it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, philosophically, it's right. very sophisticated. But, but you're absolutely right. It but it also makes no sense. It doesn't add up. Uh, and then the other aspect of that is when you deny self and you deny God, ultimately you deny relationship. And what Jesus is all about is how do we get people into right relationship with each other, and ultimately into right relationship with God. Mm. And at the core of that process, at the core of the message of the cross, is forgiveness. You cannot have relationship without forgiveness. You cannot come into the presence of God without forgiveness. You cannot receive the Lord Jesus Christ without 
accepting his forgiveness. You cannot reconcile with someone you have hurt without asking their forgiveness. Forgiveness is central to the whole process of reconciliation. And this is something that samsara and karma completely deny. There is no forgiveness. Well, here's the fun thing. Uh, the farther in into Buddhism you go, eventually you reach something called Pure Lands Buddhism, which basically has this idea that all you have to do is say the name of the Amitabha Buddha and you will be saved. You will go into the Pure Land. What it is is an ersatz system of grace. Hmm. Just got to say the name and boom, you're in the Pure Land and your next birth you'll be born, well, you'll go into Nirvana and you will cease. Okay? You won't have any more suffering. Right. Uh, and what I see in that is, first of all, it makes absolutely no sense in terms of what Buddhism originally taught. Yeah. The whole process that was in the Theravada form of Buddhism, and even in Mahayana in many ways, and of course uh, Vajrayana, Tantric Buddhism, is even more complicated. Now you're going to wipe all of that out and say, just say the name, boom, and you're, you're, you're in, in the place. You're good. Uh <laughs> For the Christian, there's something more than just saying the name of Jesus. Right. You are receiving the message of the cross, and you're mm. saying, I want Jesus to be on the throne of my life. Yeah. I mean, even Jesus says that. He says there'll be people who will say, well, didn't we call you Lord, Lord, and mm -hmm. do things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Every time I've come to the place of, and I'm sharing the gospel with someone, and they're indicating that they're interested in becoming followers of Jesus, I follow something that I learned from the four spiritual laws. I draw on a piece of paper a throne, you know, a little H, basically. Mm -hmm. And I put an E in there, and I put a cross in there. And I say, okay, who's on the throne of your life? Is it E for ego, or is it cross for Jesus? Mm. And what it means to be a Christian is you dethrone ego, and you put Jesus on the throne. And that's the simplest message of the Christian faith, making Jesus Lord of your life and mm. receiving the redemption that he's provided through the cross. Uh, very simple, very direct, but also forgiveness-oriented. Whatever you have done, no matter how bad, I don't care what it is, if you genuinely give your heart and life to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, be on the throne of my life, then everything else is wiped out. And the reality is this can be wiped out because in Christ, you have the perfect removal through the cross of guilt, you have the perfect removal through the cross of shame, and you have the perfect removal through the cross of impurity, of uncleanness, of every kind of filth. And at that moment, you become spotless and clean. Jesus has taken all of that into his cross. And uh, I don't see anything like that in any other religion anywhere. Yeah. Uh, that opportunity for full, complete redemption, forgiveness, and a restoration of what is most important, love relationship. Why do I reconcile with my wife over anything that we have a tiff about? Mm. It's so that we can be together and be the special couple that we were meant to be. Right. Why do I confess my sins to Jesus on a daily basis? In order that I may walk in closeness of fellowship with him in order that the Holy Spirit may dwell within me and lead me and guide me and comfort me in the struggles that I face. Uh, all of that is relational, relational, relational. We are real. Beings are real. Whether they are demonic beings or angels or God or human beings, we are real. Ontology is at the core of the Christian faith. Uh, Buddhism denies ontology, and that's why we are on utterly separate, you know, 
planes of existence right. and movement. That is fascinating. I'm not sure if um, this name will be familiar, familiar to you, but it, Dr. Tom Holland, who's a uh, ancient historian, um, who wrote the book Dominion, and he talks about uh, Christianity's uh, um, influence on especially the Western world, that everything we do is influenced by Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that he had, he was having a conversation with a philosopher who denied that Christianity was unique or, you know, anything like that, and that it was just a decent way to do moral life. But even then he said, you know, none of that is unique. And uh, Holland's response was that idea that this, this is the only faith that has universal ethics, even for people who don't believe, because they're giving the, you know, uh, that every human is made in the image of God to everyone on the planet, whether they believe it or not. Christians believe that, and that these are things that are universally true, cosmically true, if you will, that in all places, it's God's truth, so it's truth, and that that's unique. And so I think that that lands on um, kind of an interesting comparison to Buddhism that would say, well, if no one is anything, then then no one really matters. And you can quickly erase the value that a human life has uh, in someone if you were to you know, walk with that and just be like, all right, well, I mean, if no one really exists and if my whole purpose of self is to destroy myself, essentially, then you get rid of that idea of, no, you have the, the opposite is the Christian idea of you have human dignity. You're made in the image of God. You have innate value because of that. And you're even missing part of it though. And you can have the fullness of that, uh, in a little bit in part here with Christ. And then you'll see the complete fullness of it when you're resurrected again, as he was resurrected. And so that just made me think of that, where this is a fascinating idea of how um, Christian moral ethics, if you will, even go beyond what regular religions or even philosophy say, because they say, well, if you, you know, ascribe to this, you'll be under the code. And if you don't, you know, whatever. But Christianity says, no, there are things that apply to everyone always, whether they believe it or not. Uh, which is very fascinating, you know, and you see that. Well, you know, just to to say a few words about uh, Genesis 1, uh, that passage on uh, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, uh, is the passage I always begin Bible studies with Muslims with. We always start with that first passage, and my first question and only question for that first Bible study with a Muslim friend is, what does it mean that we are made in the image of God? Mm. Uh, and for the most part, Muslims aren't aware, and you could almost ask that of, of a Hindu as well, uh, or a Buddhist, or, or any person. What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? And clearly, image means that I reflect God. I am like God. To what purpose? We get back to that same point, relationship. I'm called into mm. intimacy of relationship with God. I'm made in His image in order that I may be in relationship with him throughout all eternity. Uh, so yeah, that, that's what, what brings us back to what's important. In other words, we are called to be in relationship with God for eternity. And every human being is equally capable of that kind of relationship. Doesn't matter their skin color, doesn't matter uh, their ethnicity, doesn't matter their language. And by the way, one of the ways that Christianity expresses this that is not true of any other religion no other religion even comes close. I mean, we're not even talking within 5% of what Christianity has done. And that is the translation of the scriptures into every living language. Mm. 
uh, Christianity is about 25 to 30 years out from actually achieving universal translation of the scriptures into every living language, as well as hundreds of dead ones, uh, languages that have since died out or that were dead from the beginning uh, when the first translation of the Bible into Sanskrit was done. Sanskrit was already a dead language. So, mm. uh, And you, you, you think about that, and why is it that Muslims don't have, you know, 7,000 different translations of the Quran? Why, why doesn't Hinduism have the Bhagavad Gita in 7,000 different languages? Why, why doesn't uh, Buddhism have its Tripitaka in, uh, or, or its Lotus Sutra in, you know, 7,000 different languages? Well, part of it is if you read those books, you recognize that they are so powerfully culture-bound Mm. that it's often expressed that you simply can't make this book in a different language. Now, in Islam, they state that, they state that straight out. Yeah. Any translation of the Quran is not a Quran. Right. Because a Quran is only a Quran if it's in Arabic, which means that God is, is an Arab. Mm. And he thinks in terms of 7th century Arab culture. That's how he thinks. That's how he behaves. That's one of the reasons why Islam is becoming increasingly out of touch with reality in the 21st century because it doesn't work. Mm. The system simply does not work. You're, you're taking something from 1,500 years ago and you're trying to make it work in the same cultural forms today, and that will never, that will never function. That will not create human flourishing. So the Bible uh, is probably the only book, only holy book I've ever run into that talks about contextualization. If you look at Acts chapter 15, where the church grapples with whether Greeks have to become culturally Jewish in order to be followers of Jesus, and they right. make the momentous decision that no, they don't. They can stay Greeks. Uh, if you go to Acts chapter 17, where Paul takes Greek culture and he reformulates it as a bridge to share the gospel of Jesus mm. with. Yeah. You recognize that Christianity, even though, yes, Christianity has been so associated with the West for so long that it's called a Western religion. Uh, and that's a real tragedy because it was yeah. never meant to be. It, it became Western because it was bottled up in Europe by Islam for, you know, 1,200 years. Right. And, and became ingrown and very much, you know, focused on, on European culture. Mm -hmm. uh, but... I think you're beginning to see churches across the world in Asia, Africa, Latin America that are breaking out of that mold and that are finding their own indigenous ways of expressing faith in Jesus. Um, we, and we could go a long way into that particular conversation. Right. Uh, but all that meaning to say that God is relationship and he meets us where we are and he redeems us within whatever culture we were raised in, whatever language we were raised in. He does not call us to... to reject our language and background. He does not call us to become Westerners, to become followers of Jesus. Right. He meets us where we are internally in our hearts. Uh, and that's something unique. Uh, it's not for no reason uh, that Hare Krishnas dress like, you know, 18th century Vaishnavas, okay? Right. Uh, dancing and singing and playing the little finger symbols and all, it, it's just they're following a culture, not just... Uh, a relationship with God, even though they would say we have a relationship, an ecstatic love relationship uh, with Krishna. But the reality is Krishna can only be an Indian. Mm. Uh, you, you don't have Krishna dressed up in a business suit. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's culture bound. 
And that's one of the reasons why I see Christianity as universal. Uh, It affirms what is beautiful in every culture. Absolutely. And that really, I think, highlights uh, how historically and spiritually unique our faith is. I mean, they're like you were saying that no one else is doing this. No one else is translating into 7,000 different languages and having the ultimate goal of of going, how can we reach every tribe, tongue, and nation? Because that's what we is just that's what heaven is described as. You know, it's not just people that look and talk like you, and it'll be a very familiar experience because it's just your culture forever. It's a whole new kingdom with whole new citizenship and whole new authority, and then you get to walk with Christ as Lord. You know, literally, we have Him spiritually now, but we're literally be on the throne, and we'll get to see Him reign and and walk in His kingdom. That kingdom term, terminology being used and. Uh, the the making of the new heaven and the new earth, and that these are incredibly bold claims, you know, of someone who of of this small Christian group that's forming, like you're saying, when we're making the decisions of uh, do you have to be Greek or Jewish, you know, culturally to be a Christian, and we're following those teachings of walking in light of the reality that this is beyond culture. Um, one of my favorite sayings, I think. Um, is that Jesus loves you enough to meet you wherever you are, and he loves you enough to not leave you that way. Mm-hmm. And so you can come into any culture, any circumstance, um, any life moment, and gladly welcome you into the family. And he loves you so much that he'll transform you, not into a culture, but in, into more of the likeness of himself, right. uh, which is so wonderful to think about that, because I think one of the challenges of giving the gospel is we can want to make little us's instead of little Christs, uh, as we give the gospel to people. And, um, well, the message of the incarnation yeah. uh, is ultimately the touchstone for us. Now, other religions have incarnations. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly Hinduism has all, you know, you might even say because of the pantheistic uh, elements within uh, the different schools of Hinduism, uh, that everybody's an incarnation uh, right? Uh, in that sense. Uh, but that incarnational sense uh, always has three elements. Why does uh, a deity come down? Uh, the deity comes down to slay the enemies, to uh, restore the dharma, and to be worshipped. Mm. So when Krishna reveals himself as nothing other than divinity to Arjun at the sort of the climax of the Bhagavad Gita, he does a theophany, and Arjun falls down and worships. Uh, this is not Christianity's pattern of incarnation. Jesus comes at, as, at, a, at a purely human level. He's not even understood as a divinity. Uh, even in his death, it would seem like everything that he claimed is broken, is defeated, mm. is shown to be false. And then only in his resurrection do we get to see that he is indeed God, uh, and in every other way, he adapts fully to the culture and the world in which he lives without killing his enemies, right. without receiving worship. He does establish a new dharma, if you will, but the dharma is in his own body. Mm. And we are called then to become one with Christ. Uh, and yes, you can become one with Krishna, but it's always uh, Krishna is, um, what shall we say, you're either a part of him and, uh, uh, you know, just separate enough so that you can have the enjoyment of, you know, union, <laughs> yeah. if you can put it that way. Uh, for Christianity, we're one with Christ, but our individuality is totally affirmed. We are mm. each 
unique human beings within our own culture, unique, but also unique on, a, on an individual level. And I would argue that you don't see that in, in any other religion. Uh, so we've talked about several unique points here, not, not just the morality of Jesus, but we've talked about the pathway of Jesus th through his own body, the concept of the grace of Jesus, uh, which every other religion ultimately either has no grace at all or invents sort of an ersatz gr grace out of nowhere. Just say this right. name and boom, you're done. You're, you're okay. Um, and that's a concession to human weakness, a realization that human beings are weak. But Christianity is robust in saying, no, there is a price to be paid for sin, but God will pay it. Mm. And what an astonishing thing for a Hindu as well. I had one Hindu friend when I was in India who said, yeah, one thing that's really different about Jesus is he said he, he died on the cross, God dying on a cross. Now that's different, mm. and it surely is. So yeah, and this idea of translating the Bible into 7,000 different languages, in every, every way we see unique elements of, of Christianity. Uh, and I think even the fact that Jesus calls his followers to be willing to lovingly give up their lives, not give up your life with a sword in your hand or a bomb in your jacket, right, right, uh, trying to kill other people, but you are willing to die for your testimony because you love those people, even the ones that are killing you. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. These are some of the most incredible statements yeah. that have ever been made in human history. Uh, and they indicate something more than just a good moral teacher. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the fascinating points. You see the example that he sets for us that we're supposed to walk in that example. Mm. And you, you see, you look at him at the end of his life in a society that is completely based legally off of when you're being accused of something, you have to absolutely destroy the other person in verbal argument uh, to prove your innocence and tear them apart. Yet when he is being questioned by the Sanhedrin, he says nothing. Famously, he says nothing except for when they say, you know, are the king of the Jews? And he goes, you've said it yourself. That's He, he only acknowledges what they confess. Uh, and they rip their clothes and they, you know, decide then, to, they decided long ago, but they formally choose then to crucify him and, and start that process. Someone needs to write a book on the uniqueness of Jesus, mm. um, taking in all these different aspects that we've talked about. There's one other point that I think is, uh, well, there's a whole bunch of other points, but one of the things that's interesting about Jesus is his use of questions. Mm. Uh, someone once said in a sermon, I haven't had a chance to verify this, but in the New Testament, Jesus is asked about 300 questions, and most of the time, like 295 times out of the 300, he responds with a question. So rabbinical. <laughs> well, rabbinical, yes, uh, in one sense. But also, if you think about it, in most religions, when you get asked a question, the, the high and mighty person, you know, pontificates. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Jesus, he does do the Sermon on the Mount, but that's pretty much him just straightforward teaching. Yeah. Most of the time, he's asking good questions of people. Drawing conversation out and yeah, real contemplation. Figuring out where people are at. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that also shows the cross-cultural aspect. Uh, rather than just getting you to perform certain deeds in a certain way, I want to understand what's going on inside your head. How do you really think? Mm. Because that's where real transformation will take place. Absolutely. This has been an incredible conversation. I'm thankful that we've gotten to sit down and talk through these things. I'm wondering, what's one thing you'd want people to walk away knowing about Jesus uh, as a moral teacher, as a teacher at all, uh, after listening to this? Well, uh, 
the phrase that was most commonly on the lips of believers in New Testament times was simply this, Jesus is Lord. Mm. Jesus is Lord. That and the cross are the two main early confessions of Christianity. So we're not talking about somebody who can uh, give you good moral teaching. We're not talking about somebody who uh, can help you to, you know, be a better person because you're just going to work harder, at, you know, right. on, the, on the treadmill of good works. Uh, you are dealing with a person who radically seeks to save you, and he does through through his own flesh. And his resurrection is a demonstration that God the Father has accepted his deeds his deed on the, on the cross. And therefore, the simplest confession of faith is Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of my life. Yeah. I've given myself to him. He calls the shots in my life. And the liberation that comes from that, recognizing that through his cross, uh, he has made me his child. So when we say Jesus is Lord, it's not the kind of lordship that you'd have with a centurion over his soldiers. Right. It's the lordship of a father caring for his child. Mm. Uh, it's the lordship of a Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us to comfort us, uh, to guide us, to speak to us, to make the word come alive as, as we study God's word and seek his face. So uh, Jesus is so much more than a moral teacher. Uh, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want to follow him, you have to simply say from your heart, Jesus is Lord mm. in my life. I give him the throne. I enthrone Jesus as king in my life. And the wonderful thing is he isn't just a king. He isn't just a commander. He's a, he's a father. Mm. Uh, and he embraces us just as the father embraced the prodigal son. Uh, powerful stuff. And what a liberating message. And honestly, the whole world needs this. Muslims need this. Hindus need this. Buddhists need this. Uh, the whole world needs Jesus, and that doesn't mean that they're all going to become Westerners. Right. I wouldn't want them to. Stay within your own culture, within your own nations. Uh, Jesus is not about a political party. He really isn't. Uh, yes, people made him into something political later, hundreds of years after his time. They made him into something political, but that was never anything that Jesus encouraged. All right. uh, he clearly said in uh, John 19, if my kingdom were of this world, my Servants would be fighting for me, mm. but as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. And any Christian who tries to make Jesus some kind of a king in a physical human here and now sense has totally missed the point of Christ. Because mm. once you create one nation that calls itself Christian, you automatically create enemy nations. Right. And Jesus is about reconciling all nations to himself. I mean, Absolutely. that's the simplest paradigm. So Jesus is Lord uh, means that we retain the political structures that we have. You know, uh, India can continue being mm. the way it wants to be politically. Pakistan mm. as well. Honor the emperor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and Christians basically are there to transform every tribe, tongue, people, and nation through the message, through the good news, as Scripture calls it, of Jesus. Absolutely. Dr. Cashin, thank you so much for being on the show. This was absolutely wonderful. Okay, well, thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for tuning in to this production from Sand Hills Media Ministry. This episode was produced and hosted by John Dayback. Audio mixing and camera work by Sean Wigner. Post-production by Eric Wigner. Special thanks to our guest, David Cashin.
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us through liking, subscribing, and sharing on your social media. It is more than you know to fuel this project. If you'd like to know more about Sandhills or join us on a Sunday, you can do so at sandhillschurch.org. If you liked our song, it's Same Blood Instrumental by King's Kaleidoscope.